This episode of the 21st Century Classroom is entirely given over to Vermont's Secretary of Education, Dr. Rebecca Holcomb. In August 2016, Secretary Holcomb spoke on equity at a conference on amplifying student voice. She was kind enough to allow us to record and share her advice to educators on examining their own privilege and using it to try to level the playing field for Vermont's students. A quick note on the audio for this episode, August in Vermont this year was broiling hot, so there were some fans going in the room during the recording. Our uh, senior audio engineer deeply regrets the background noise, but to turn them off would have incited a riot. And now, without further ado, Secretary Holcomb. Um, so, I, again, I said that I don't need to sell you on the importance of student voice and personalization, so I'm not going to, but I am going to take this moment to talk about three things that are really, really important to me as you take on this work of student voice and personalization. Because there's two things that if you don't put them at the front of your work as you do it, we will lose track of and we won't be serving student voice and we won't be serving students. Um, one of the things that you may or may not know about my background is I grew up in six different countries and four continents and I learned in seven different kinds of school contexts, including homeschool actually for a period of about six months in Pakistan. And it is very hard to travel around the world and travel around the United States and not learn some pretty powerful lessons about power and privilege, and in particular, about how power and the advantage that power can give when it's associated with things like wealth, relative wealth, education, different levels of education, race, and gender. And we see that. We see that profoundly in the Vermont context as well. It's very easy to not remember that that has to be part of how we have this conversation. If we are truly committed to cultivating student voice, we have to be acknowledging that there are many ways to be powerful and valued members of our civil society. And not all of them are the ones we might have chosen for ourselves. If you think about our education force, our teachers are predominantly middle class, they're predominantly women, and they're predominantly um, white in the state of Vermont. How are we going to recognize success? How are we going to engage students who are different from ourselves? And many of them are not the same as ourselves. And so how do we create a system that supports personalization but that is deeply respectful and supportive of the diversity of human experience and need for support, particularly when it may not be part of our own experience. That takes a certain amount of personal introspection and risk-taking that is really, really hard work. You are at the front of that, you have to engage in that, or you are going to replicate some of the same problems that we have currently in your new model of personalization. You have to be attentive to that. Um, so just be mindful as we talk about this that giving voice is seeding authority. It means that you give up some of your authority so somebody else can develop their own. And not giving students um, the opportunity to just repeat independently what we would have assigned them to do anyway. So first of all, we have to take ser seriously this whole project of, um, of equity. Um, because there are some students, and I think Gus in part because he represents a demographic group that were not that successful in the state of the that in our data state We need to remember that we have to be constantly asking ourselves, is this really an opportunity that every one of our children can take advantage of? Because if we aren't doing that in a very disciplined way, we are going to create systems that benefit some children more than others. Because we don't come to the table with equal abilities to exercise those. There are several ways to think about equity, and somebody at the agency, Michael Hawk, gave me this way of framing it. And I think it's a really helpful way to think about it. We can say that we open the door. We said, we have this opportunity. We have Act 77 and personalized learning. That's available to everybody in the state as an entitlement. But that's not equity. It isn't equity. We can 
could also say, we've opened this door, we've created this tool, and we want to make sure everybody is represented at the table, including all of these kids in our pathways. And so we're going to track whether or not they're, they're participating in some kind of flexible pathway. I would say most work in Vermont is in one of these two phases. But the next phase is really the last one. And true equity to me means to say, did you open the door, bring everybody in, in portions relatively consistent with the representation of the population, and did you give them the support they need to actually take advantage of those opportunities? And that's as a state where we need to take, do our next level of work. Because if we simply provide the opportunity and say, it's up to you to get it, but don't recognize that students living in serious adversity do not come to school with the same privileges and the same advantages and actually can't access them without additional support, we are replicating the same kind of tiered system that we currently have that serves some kids at the extent of other kids. And our obligation as educators and as people who are committed to civil society is to make sure that we are rigorously taking that apart to ensure that all student voices at the table, not just the students who are better supported. Um, and that, that's really, really a core commitment of the agency. And it's really important because we know in our own data that this is a real problem. We know that this is happening. And it's also important because we know from fields like the field of uh, neuroscience that the job of the educator is fundamentally different because we know that ability is not fixed. There was a study that, to me, was one of the most compelling studies I've read in the last couple of years by Elizabeth Sowell, who's the director of um, uh, developmental cognitive neural imaging at the Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. And she studied brain surface area in children from different socioeconomic strata. And she found that the surface area of the brain of a child whose family makes less than $25,000 a year is about 6% smaller in surface area than the brain of a child who makes $150,000 a year. And the difference was most dramatic for children who are both socioeconomic levels. Wealthier children also perform better on tests of cognitive and executive functioning. And that surface area that she's talking about is the surface area that controls a lot of the executive functioning, which frankly is the basis of student voice. If you can't manage your own operations, you can't exercise your voice. Um, we also know that this study controls the genetic factors. So there's nothing wrong with the genes of children. The study hypothesized that the differences in brain surface area and functioning or a function of environmental factors like access to basic nutrition, access to healthcare, access to clean and safe areas to play, air quality, and rich, supportive, and responsive learning environments. That's on us. Think about the implications of that. It's our shame. It is our shame if we tolerate that kind of uh, inequity because quite literally, the adults in the child's life are the sculptors of the brain on a mechanical level through the interactions we have and the supports we choose or don't choose to provide for our children. When you interact with a child in your work around personalized learning, you are actually reshaping the basic architecture of their brain in ways that build their capabilities to interact effectively with others and exercise those beyond us. Um, when adults are inconsistent, stressed, scared, you actually impede development at the neurological level, and that has profound implications for potential down the road. You are actually eroding the potential for student voice in some of our children. Um, this is also true, and, I, and a lot of people say, well, that's what we need early intervention. You need to know that this is true. This urgency is true at every single level. There was another researcher named Sue Lamson from the University College of London who studied adolescents over four years of high school. And she found this initial group that included, a random sample, that included both um, high-achieving and lower-achieving and more struggling students. She tested their IQs and analyzed their brains using MRIs over a period of time, and three or four years later. And she found 
that the average of all scores stayed the same across all years. Kids ended up, on average, with the same IQ after four years as they had in the beginning. However, um, individual IQ scores fell or rose by as much as 21 points. Think about that. So the individual change is huge. That's enough to make the difference between a child who is average and a child who is equal. And here's what's even more powerful. The brain scans that she showed showed that the changes in IQ were mirrored by changes in the architecture of the brain. And the, what the takeaway is that when children's IQs go up, it's a signal of increased density of neurons in cells and associated parts of the brain. And when they go down, kids are losing that brain density. In other words, these changes reflect real changes in ability, not varying concentration. It wasn't that the kids weren't paying attention. And that the brains of our children continue to be plastic far beyond the window that we used to play. In other words, what you do and the systems that you set up matter because they actually determine whether your children can actually exercise voice. You are determining by the quality of the support you give your children whether or not they will be able to realize their dreams. And that is, that is the most important responsibility I think any of us could ever have. Um, if the ability isn't fixed, if we have gross, um, gross struggling neglect of certain children, that's on us. That is a cultural choice we make. And if we don't like it, we need to say, what are we doing to do it? And I point that out because I don't believe you can be an educator committed to student voice and not be a powerful advocate for equity. So I hope as part of this work, you will really think about how you can advocate for equity and for support for children across a broad spectrum of needs so that all of our children can come to the table and take advantage of these opportunities. Um, and then the last thing I would say is, and this I'm going to credit someone who spoke to Amy uh, at a, a national conference, we have to be very honest and diligent about making sure that when we provide these opportunities to kids, we are really focused on quality. If you think about Gus, what was powerful about his experience is we took a child who by his own admission was coming out of school. I don't know if you caught it, but in the video, he's talking about his profit and loss statements, his balance sheets, the financial forecasting he's doing. He's got a model, a math model for how his food is going to progress and develop. He's doing an awful lot of math that he was not doing before. And he was working with a math teacher to make sure he was learning at high levels. There is no equity and there is no way out of poverty if you can't read them. We know that the generation growing up is facing more adversity and the achievement gaps are wider now than they've been in about 40 or 50 years. And there is less social mobility. We know that that problem is being aggravated. We owe it to our kids. We have to make sure that the work we're doing isn't just about finding voice, but about finding opportunities to also challenge students responsibly when they have not challenged themselves enough. That's what we have to do. That's our commitment to our kids, so that they are really graduating, not just with a vision, but as we often say at the agency, with the wheels on the bus. They can actually drive their vision because we've equipped them with the skills and the knowledge they need to be powerful players in their world. So I, I really think it's important to, to remember that because we know in our own Vermont data that, that um, we have many children who are leaving school without the skills that they really need to and we cheat them. We cheat them when we do that. Process without skills and knowledge is cheating the child because we haven't given them the means to get where they need to go. And the world in so many ways is biased towards people with skills in ways that we who have skills sometimes don't acknowledge. And we need to teach our kids that code. That's our ethical responsibility as educators. So I would just leave you with this final word. I think I probably outstayed my 
welcome. <laughs> but if you are not currently an advocate for equity, I would argue that you are truly not an advocate for student rights because not all of our children have that opportunity unless you lend them a little bit of your privilege. So I would begin by entreating you as you begin this day to think about how you can use your voice to help others be a voice who might 